0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe show. Yeah, man. Nice. nice. That was really
2: nice. Did you hear that? Because calling in right now on the line is Dr. Jeff Bostick. So welcome. I'm so glad that, that you joined us. Tell me a little bit about um what are you doing out there in Maryland now?
1: Well, mostly I just live in Maryland. Oh, that's I- nice in d c which is like thirty miles away, but that's what I did in in Boston. I lived in New Hampshire and then drove down thirty five miles to the mothership down at Mass General. so this is a familiar circumstance, and I'm doing the same stuff I did up in Massachusetts uh as you alluded to a minute ago, I work in a bunch of schools, and so we do things to try to you know promote and cultivate good brains, like you said, everything is the brain, so it's like why don't you just build a good brain instead of like try to repair a broken one somewhere mm-hmm. later down the line so we do a lot of that, and then I still, we're, we've done, actually we have done a little bit of work extrapolating the police stuff. I heard you allude to that. Yep. Uh, we've done that already in the DC and, and the Maryland area. So uh, yes, yeah, so we got this is the same stuff.
2: That's great. So, so how do we promote healthy brains, good brains in schools?
1: Well, we do things that are associated um, with what we know from brain science. And so concretely, you know, uh, things are a little bit different than what we might've been taught for me, 30 years ago in medical school, uh, the biggest one being that, like, if you have bad habits, uh, you end up, like, getting good in terms of your brain at holding on to those bad habits. And, yeah. and you alluded to it a moment ago, Joe, with uh, substance abuse and that risk of, of of having an addiction problem going, like, one to four when someone starts using younger versus one in 25 or whatever when it's it's older. So right. the of the story is. When you're young, that's when we want to really work on early intervention, trying to get kids back on trajectory if they're starting to struggle either academically, socially, emotionally. And I have to say, schools have been really good about picking up this. Like, they get it. They're like, they're not mostly like thinking only three R's. They're like, yes, we want to make sure our academics are good, but. Great research was done actually looking at all the studies in the world by a guy in New Zealand uh, named John Hattie, and it showed that, like, social-emotional health was the second biggest variable influencing your academic achievement. So once people hear that, they're like, well, maybe it makes sense to actually attend to some of this kind of stuff, because it'll actually get our, our test scores up at the same time. So you build happier people who are less vulnerable to any kind of psychopathology, and that seems to also portend good outcomes in other spheres of life.
2: You know, and, and that is absolutely so true in addiction. One, I mean, one of the, the leading risk factors for using drugs and alcohol is low self-esteem. You know, if you, if you don't like yourself, you know, and you, you can't find any pleasure, you Got to find pleasure somewhere. Right. So yep. are, you, are you finding that as well with, with, you know, the social-emotional stuff, low self-esteem, anxiety, depression? What, what do you – because you've done a lot of research on this too. So what are you finding?
1: Well, so we can take any of these things that, you, that you're mentioning, though, so like the self-esteem thing. And you know, the biggest thing for us is – How can you translate brain findings, you know, real science, if you will, into something that is palatable and useful to a police officer, school teacher, you know, a regular adult parent, if you will? And most people are really enamored and interested in this kind of work. And so concretely, it's like self-esteem. What we know is what you mentioned a minute ago, which is uh, you want to create experiences where the person is going to be successful. Duh. That's not any kind of rocket science. But the big thing is, you know what? most people have failures and we've always run sideways from that uh in the u.s we're like no don't fail do whatever it takes to win and it's like no if you look at michael Jordan, people who are successful at sports and music and most everything else what they're really good at is when they don't do something effectively when they lose they figure out what they did wrong Hmm. and they correct it versus blame the referee versus say that the wind was blowing from uh, one side of one open door in the gym or some other kind of thing where they can evade or, or negate that. So so it's, it's all about, you know, resilience right now and grit, you know, finding your passion, uh, but also cultivating perseverance with that because all the passion, all the talent in the world is is not all that great if you don't want to practice, you know, playing a sport or music or chess or whatever it might be. So it's trying to get all those kind of things, you know, kind of embedded from the get-go so that people are not afraid to try stuff, fail at it, learn sometimes of course you stay with it sometimes you move on to other things that's that's what youth is supposed to be about Is kind of about what you're good at dr
0: dr bostick what uh, what age groups are you are you focusing on primarily
1: well we work with kids actually that are not down here in dc usually around three to four years old and we work with them of course until they're in their mid-20s you know that's the big joke is uh the good brain research that actually came out of uh... Um, Boston it out of belmont out of McLean. the the first adolescent stuff that really was profound for us was deborah yorgiel and todd stuff that showed that teenagers process stuff in the emotional part of the brain and an adult receiving the same stimulus you know seeing a, a picture of a face for example would interpret it by using their frontal lobe so it's like the joke was here you have police officers or teachers or parents like trying to talk to some kid Uh, And they're basically speaking German and the kid's hearing French. And Mm. so, you know, you'd see all these kind of funny conflicts that would occur. And so it was, again, just kind of managing to do that. So the the joke in all this, of course, is um, the auto industry, or I should say the auto insurance industry, figured out a long time ago that the brain's not mature, so you're like 25. And so all the actuarial tables were like, you can start driving a rental car when you're 25 because that seems to coincide with when the brain actually is, you know, such that people act maturely, if you will. So I think we're we're really changing our notions of, uh, of how how long it takes the brain to fully be ready to go so to speak
2: yeah and, and that's that's part of also what we what we teach the audience in drugs free theater you know we we, we sort of combine it all into you know, comparing the limbic system that emotional impulsive yeah. part of the brain to the frontal lobe and the prefrontal cortex in particular the rational part of the brain and um, one of the things that, you know, one of our phrases is, uh, keep it frontal, don't go limbic. You know, because sometimes kids just, and we all do, I mean, we all can get so emotional and impulsive and irrational, and then we can step it back. So so how do we, how do we teach kids uh, about their brain? What are you guys doing with that?
1: Well, you know, the most important word that I'll say for anything we're talking about, in my mind, is development. Mm. And that is, you have to attune, whether it's you know, if you will, drug-free theater, whether it is teaching algebra, whatever it might be, the better that you attune that to a human's developmental brain moment, you know, where they are developmentally in their brain's growth, uh, the better the outcome going to be. So, you know, you know, our joke is always with things like with bullying. It's like you can tell a first to a third grader if they see someone on the, a playground treating someone badly to come and tell you about it, and they'll gladly do it. You you know, that would be a preposterous thing to do to say, suggest to someone who's like in the 7th to mm. the 11th grade. Uh, the worst thing you can do as a middle schooler is rat out one of your friends. And, again, we know now that uh, the ventral striatum part of the brain gets turned up so that you'll do peer pressure stuff, mm. you know, at those ages that you won't do before that and you won't do them after that. So that stuff is real. It's not like stuff that we fabricate, to be honest
2: that is so
0: cool so are you following these kids from the age of three to four all the way up till their early 20s is that the study that you're working through
1: no but we'd love to yeah I mean, this is that most of what we're doing is like in vivo and by that i mean we're literally working at a bunch of schools uh-huh. many are charter schools down in the dc area and we're trying all kinds of different things and one of the other things that we're doing this year is teacher wellness you know, we've figured out that our attrition rate down in this area is tough, like it is in any urban school district, uh, like Boston as well. So we're doing things to try to, again, equip the teachers with uh, the skills that they need to be able to survive. And again, they may be a little bit older, but a lot of them are still in their early 20s as well. So they're still malleable in a relative way.
2: That's really interesting. So you find that teachers also, um, that some of their self-esteem is vulnerable as well?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, the truth is, you know, if you go into teaching and you you assume that when you go to teach in a school that people are going to act like, you know, you did when you were in school to some degree. And then a kid, again, many times people go into different kinds of school environments and they're like, oh, my holy goodness. And I say this from personal experience. I I actually was a school teacher, you know, when I got out of um, College, Hmm. And, of course, this was like when I was literally 20 years old and was teaching like in a seventh grade, very difficult inner city school. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is not like anything I really felt prepared for despite having a teaching degree. You know, it took a while to kind of figure some of that stuff out.
2: Wow. And so now you're able to help other teachers recognize that it's not necessarily about their limitations. It's being able to really teach the brains that they're in charge of, that they're responsible for
1: right and it's recognizing you know differences in kids brains right uh but but also you know we do all this stuff for the teachers again around their wellness and every single bit of it extrapolates to the kids and that's done very deliberately on our part but it's like the nutrition stuff you know the jokes are you know we know that drinking diet soda for example we thought oh that's a good idea but it turns out it's a horrible idea Mm. because the nucleus accumbens responds to sweetness and so when you have a fake sweetener, but it still tastes sweet to you, your brain both learns how not to achieve satiety, so you will eat more, drink more than you did before, and it's like crap. You will, In fact, there's, they've done uh, rat studies that show that rats will more seek out artificial sweetening type of agents than they will cocaine. So we will similarly, when we drink our, our diet drinks here, think that we're getting no calories, but we're turning our brain on to look for this stuff, look for this stuff, find more of that sweet stuff. And so, again, we end up eating more, and so that's been the you know the bad joke or the lesson from history. So the point is we both talk with teachers about that for their own lives, but also, like, let's look at healthy snacks because we all know. You know, what do they eat at school? Well, we wish they ate carrot sticks, but mostly they changed their carrot sticks so that they can get some Cheetos or whatever it might be. And, of course, we're trying to, like – find increasingly uh, large numbers of palatable, attractive things uh, for kids to eat, you know, to work on the nutrition stuff. So it's nutrition, exercise, exercise is a huge thing. You know, people have talked about getting rid of exercise, and I'll, I'll, I'll just have to make mention of this. Um, exercise does the same thing, aerobic exercise. It's the same thing to your brain as taking antidepressants or lithium or agents that work for mood regulation. Uh, it turns on a gene called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. I'm talking about uh, exercise, and so that's the natural thing we should all be doing. You need to do about 40 minutes four times a week, but that's you know it's something that should be intrinsic to our you know our daily life. That's what the way humans were built. So trying to get that stuff like foisting back in has been important. My funny story around that was. We went several years ago to South Korea because they had the largest increase in their suicide rate of any kind of civilized country on the planet. Um, and we went there and we saw that the kids went to school all day. And then they went to hagwons, which is one of their words for school, which was a school that they the kids, 75% of the kids went to in the evening. And so we said, well, when do they play? And they're like, well, we don't do that so much. And so we literally went to the government and they implemented exercise, you know, PE. So... We're waiting to see the results of, of that in terms of how much it will get or not the suicide rate. But we know that it's a it's a helpful thing uh, for people to do. So, again, we're trying to get all this stuff kind of built into the lifestyle of both the teachers and then also the kids. And the other thing, of course, is we know that, you know, trauma, very vogue right now. But we know that when you're in difficult, austere, negative, adverse life experience circumstances, that it, it frays the ends of your telomeres. Uh, a woman named Stacy Drury, a researcher down in uh, – uh, New Orleans, of all places, actually went to Romania and studied kids in orphanages to figure this out. And that led to like IQ drops of like 10 points mm. over a short span of years. So, so, again, we know that being in a traumatic, scary experience is difficult. So, full circle, you know, here we are back at our schools, knowing that a lot of our kids sometimes have been in tough circumstances. And it's as silly as making sure that we have background music going on so that the kid is not hypervigilant and looking for the next like velociraptor outside of the door every time they hear something so mm-hmm. that again they can just kind of be in a calmer kind of place and um and you know find the world to be a more predictable place
2: so mark mark um sounds who's my co-host had had a question for you um well mark, we, we, we we understand
0: that you uh are also part of your expertise is is to train police officers for signs and things to be looking for in young adolescents or or young adults that might uh, signal something bad is coming? Close. Okay, let's do it.
1: (laughs) So uh, the truth is back in, uh, I want to say around 2004, somewhere around that time, an attorney at the Suffolk uh, University Law School, a woman named Lisa Thoreau Gray, who's still there, uh, and now she runs an entity, an organization called Strategies for Youth, she looked up and said it would be great if we could get the arrest rate for adolescents down. And so she created this program and one tiny component of it, like two hours of it, was us going in, and by that I mean, child psychiatrists, mental health folks, and going through this stuff with the officers. And again, it was literally like, you know, typically an officer would go up to a kid who was being inappropriate, you know, like not getting out of the way of the subway station and say, hey, get out and they would go the kid would then tend to oftentimes go limbic as joe uh, alluded to earlier and all that would happen from that would be like a, a big escalation so the point was back around this time the the, uh, the subway police the mbta they were arresting about 750 adolescents a year and of course the vast majority of the time these were not significant dangerous threatening criminal uh wannabes or people who were aimed in that direction it was Developmentally, officer would go up, encourage, even in a nice way, uh, kids to go somewhere else, and things would escalate. Because, again, what's the one thing you don't want to do as a kid? You don't want to look like a wussy butt in front of your peers. You've got to, like, save face. So they would far rather go down in a blaze of glory trying to argue with the police officer than just say, oh, thank you, officer. I'll go over there. So, anyway, we taught the officers to do these kinds of profound things. When they would interrupt, uh, when they would go in and, and see a kid, they would politely tell them what they wanted them to do instead of not what, what they wanted them not to do. So instead of "Hey, you can't stand here," they would go over and say, "Hey, if you guys want to go outside, you can go up this ramp or you can go up those stairs and you can go to the park over here, you can go over here to the Starbucks, whatever you want to do that way. So they, they tried to give them directives that were helpful, so that minimized conflict. And then if the, the adolescent started escalating, they would ask them questions like, is it hot in here? To you, they would ask him something completely unrelated to the uh, circumstance, which would stop that limbic uh, kind of cycle that was going on. That was again very jacked up, emotional, and not logical at all. And then try to you know to break it down that way, and then we had good success with that. So, concretely, the arrest rate went from about 750 adolescents a year to about 75. And again, this was a lot wow. of. Up- donuts that uh, that lisa put in and that that's remained true to my knowledge to the present and she's done that training um, everywhere you know in indiana and seattle and again down in dc now and down in uh, other states I, I can't remember the number of states now but it's it's a large number you know with a, a large cadre of other people who've done it so you know it just makes sense and the poor officers of course are just glad to have additional things on their tool belt that work because they don't want to sit around filling out paperwork nor do they want to typically take teenagers to ground anyway so anyway it's just made sense.
2: so so give me that example again
1: <laughs>
0: well it S- sounded like your it sounded like your cup of coffee doesn't right? it yeah. right
2: it does uh, so,
1: uh, I, so, so I, I go ahead, ahead. The best one was, you know, we went through this training, we'd have, of course, the officers practice and role-play this stuff so they get, like, facile at it. And my favorite was, you know, some weeks later, an officer came back and I said, yeah, I did this. He, he was like, I went down, I had these two adolescents who were escalating, and they were going to have a physical fight with each other. And so he walked up to them, and they were like, I'm going to, you know, one of them, I'm going to beat you up, and the other one, no, I'm going to beat you up. And they were screaming louder and louder. And he walked up and said, whoa, those are some serious guns you got to one of them, referring not to... Guns, but referring to muscles. Mm. And so, of course, the kid said, yeah, man, I can do like 100 push-ups. And, of course, the other kid said, I can do 150. And the officer said, show me. <laughs> so they're both doing push-ups, and then they get up, and, of course, they're out of breath. And It's like, well, I'm going to have to beat you up tomorrow, you know, <laughs> when I got my <laughs> breath. So it was it's just a great way to de-escalate stuff, and that was kind of the, the purpose of it.
2: It really is. yeah And and, and in, in in many ways it's also treating these kids with respect too, as opposed to confronting them, you know, getting them angry. But treating kids with respect, being you know, on their level, uh it, it's so effective. Parents, you know, you may want to, you know, think about this too. You know, how do you how do you connect with your kids when you're trying to have a conversation? Right. You know? It's it's all about respect. Small changes have big effects, right? right? That's
0: right.
1: And that was a huge uh, effect, actually, on the officers was, you know, many of them had their own kids, and they, like, could immediately see this stuff. And it was, you know, it was all the same stuff. It's just like you said. The kids are locked into an amygdala mode, and and we're preferentially in a frontal lobe. And, again, we made sense out of that. It's like, well, why would that be the case? Why do teenagers turn up this emotional part of their brain, Mm -hmm. right? That would seem, like, counterintuitive from an evolutionary standpoint. But it's like your job when you're 13 years old is to – have some degree of conflict with your parents so that you can separate from them and find your place in your peer group, so that you can fall in love and then sustain the species, right? Right. And so it's like you got to have that amygdala turned up. You don't talk to te- you know teenagers and say, "Hey, you found somebody you're attracted to," and they say, "Yeah, this person like has a very good temperament that's complementary to my values." <laughs> They're like, "She's hot," or "He's hot," or whatever. So once we got them to understand again that kind of process to it, it made sense. The whole like teenagers prune their brain cells, you know, that's that's when they lose brain cells during adolescence. So it's like road construction in their head, you know. The uh, stuff we mentioned about peer pressure. Once they they saw those pieces again, I think they felt you know they found that plausible. It made sense to them, and then they were able to you know work with it. I think.
0: Can we uh, can we take this in a different direction with the latest okay. news that we've been having uh, recently over the last few years? Is all these. These new um, these school shootings. What uh-huh. what what is going on from your perspective?
1: Well, a bunch of things. Uh, first and foremost, you're less likely to get it shot at a school now than you than you were in recent decades. The the uh, apex, the pinnacle of getting shot at school, actually occurred in the early '90s. And then even after that, the, the shootings that we're familiar with, the ones that, that have names that are, you know, that are names of schools, which I actually prefer not to use. Yeah. We'll get into it in a minute. But the point of the story is, is that schools are still an incredibly safe place to be. For any child who gets shot or, or, or killed at a school, 250 kids will get shot and killed somewhere outside of school. Mm. So the notion that schools are a dangerous place is, I'm sorry, fake news. Yeah, uh, It's just inaccurate. And the stuff that you hear about, oh, my God, there's been 290 school shootings since, you know, 2010. That's not really being fair. Like, a lot of those school shootings are suicides. They include colleges and technical schools. You know, we're not really comparing apples to apples here. So the first foremost point is, is that it's not really a dangerous situation to the magnitude that the media would sometimes suggest that it is.
0: But in the 70s and 80s, it was unheard of. That someone was gonna walk into a school and and open fire
1: well what? but you said it it was unheard of you didn't have 50 TV stations mm. showing up when something happened to like televise everything no seriously the biggest school uh, death count occurred probably I think it was about the early 1900s uh, and again I'm not gonna glorify it, but I'm gonna simply say that had the biggest body count but you don't want to say that because right now with all of the media Focus on the body count and who got how many people. As long as that's prominent, you yeah. are going to continue to see it. And I don't mean that hostily toward the media, but it's just that I'm telling you we all have a responsibility in trying to alter this. And one of the media's responsibilities here is not for showing ch- it all day and night right. and making it like schools are a dangerous place and you and you should be jacked up and throwing soup cans and all that kind of stuff instead of learning how to read and recognize phonics. That's right. Crazy. The big variable, I think, there's two big variables in all this. There's a bunch more, but the two big ones that I see that warrant some attention are what we do see that's common in school shootings for the most part is that you see kids who don't have a place. Mm. And if there's any one thing that we would wish for, it's, again, back to development. When you separate from your parents and you got to find your place in that peer group, if you don't feel like you have a place, you're going to be, like, you know, taken out of the herd, so to speak. Uh, it's not that's that's when people are more vulnerable to retaliate
2: for the herd
1: so it's really important for all of us all of the adults in the community not just school staff but you know whether it's church people whether it's adults in the community whether it's uh, little league coaches the whole shebang anytime we can get kids connected that's that's probably our best immediate and most significant variable to reduce the probability that they're gonna have some kind of like mass shooting kind of thing and then seriously with the media There's no benefit to going out and uh, extolling this stuff because, again, for a kid who developmentally looks up and sees no recourse for them, this is my role, I'm never going to have anything. I'm going to be bullied the rest of my life, I'm never going to get married or have kids, blah, blah. You can see how they're not going to look forward and go, this is just a phase, I'll get past this, and life will be good, and I'll look back on these people and be, you know, I did well. They look up and it's like, okay, I can do something right now in the and now, and that's you know, it's just not not helpful.
0: And I'll be all over TV and the newscasters, <laughs> the newscasters exactly. will uh, will make me a celebrity. Yeah, um, exactly. ho- hopefully the media starts paying attention and, and doesn't glorify and stops naming these 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 uh, perpetrators. But are they are, Is it easy to identify these kids as you see you know in your work like these people that they, these kids that aren't finding a community? They're they're kind of loners I mean are they difficult to identify because they kind of fall into the shadows or are they easy to identify and then and then try to help support
1: it's a really good question you know the US Secret Service and the FBI you know were commissioned to figure this out in the 1990s and in 2002 they looked up and said it's not possible They said, you know, if we really try to look at all the variables, and there's a slew of risk variables, right? Like if you have lower intelligence, uh, if you're a victim of bullying, if, uh, if you're using substances, all kinds of things increase your risk. But the problem is you pick up everybody. That is not everybody at school, but way too many people. And the probability is, is that next to none of these people are going to do it. So you're, you're, the testing was way too sensitive, picking up people and not nearly specific enough, able to distinguish those who really were dangerous from those who were not. So now backtracking a step, the honest truth is is that, you know, we have some sense of variables when we look at kids, like when we evaluate them and stuff. But the bigger thing is it's so much a perfect storm. It is a kid can be seeming like they're doing relatively well, and then, uh-oh, they get rejected, broken up with by, you know, a significant other, uh, they're getting bullied, they make a bad grade, and they feel like they're not going to get into the next phase of their life, whatever kind of school or vocational program they're le- they're looking at. And it's kind of like when all these things just coalesce at the same moment. Those sometimes push people over the edge. It's occasionally people will sit down and plan something out for months uh, to do it, but that's that's not always common at all. So
2: it's it's again getting back to the limbic brain, yeah. the impulsive brain. Things are happening here and now. It's as if it's never going to change in the future. So and then you know there's a the whole idea that really I think one of the most difficult things to predict is aggression um... and violence one of the things that that i like to remind kids especially kids who are who are really depressed um, are the two ways of thinking there was just this, this theorist psychologist piaget many years ago who looked at the different stages of, of brain development and one of them is called concrete operations where everything is like here and now and little kids think in that way everything is concrete It's right now And then adolescents begin to develop abstract thought, the ability to really begin thinking about the future. But I think sometimes both of those things occur at the same time. Tell me what you think about this, Doctor. Um, That both occur at the same time, and a kid can think about the future, but all they see is more here and now. And that can be really depressing, as if nothing is ever going to change. And I think those are the kids uh, that we certainly see in inpatient psychiatry, and our outpatient clinics. I think those are the kids who... Who may be the ones at, at highest risk that uh, that you're talking about? What do you think about that idea?
1: Well, I think there's. I think you're right, and I'm not trying to be nasty, but there's two variables that support what your your contention is. The first is is that uh, we back to that emotional part. We know that when kids get emotional, it, it interferes with their cognitive processing. And so, concretely, kids who are jacked up and again traumatized, their hippocampus, their memory part of the brain, literally shrinks it gets smaller and they're less able to retain and understand information and then use that to solve problems down the road instead their amygdala that emotional part gets bigger and so they're in kind of perpetual preparation for fight flight or freeze so right off the bat they're struggling more now going back to jean piaget now we'll make fun of uh, gun control and stuff perhaps in a moment but i'm from texas so back there he's called jean piaget the point of the story is uh, Piaget's work was looked at uh, at the University of Arizona by a guy named Anton Lawson. And so the whole point was he was a science guy. I think he taught biology and chemistry or one of the the two. And he found that only about 40 percent of the college freshmen, 18, 19-year-olds, could do hypothetical reasoning, could do abstract thinking. That is, they were still relying on concrete operations much more than they were quote unquote formal operations, that more abstract kind of thinking and looking know, generalizing and looking forward. So again, we know, like with the auto uh, insurance industry, your brain's really not fully using and and preferentially relying on that kind of thinking until you're probably 22, 23, 24, if you're lucky.
2: And for some of us, you know, it it may never never develop. That's that's what people say. Well, arrested adolescent
1: works for some of us, Jeff. We're all happy with that.
0: (laughs) So I'm not going to let you go too quickly on your uh, comment with the gun control, Dr. Bostic. Does that have... uh, What's your opinion on that with respect to the school shootings?
1: Uh, So I I have to, like, give you you my biases here. Okay. Um, So I grew up in Texas. I lived there for the first 35 years of my life, and then I came to Boston. And so... I, and I told you I lived in New Hampshire, and I raised my daughters, and they know about guns. They know how to shoot guns of various calibers and all that kind of stuff. So let's just be open and upfront about that stuff. But they also know how to use chainsaws and things like that, because I'm like, you ought to know how to use tools and stuff. But the whole point is this. You know, there's all this talk about arming teachers and all kinds of interesting uh, ideas, but this is the point. It's not a logical argument. It's a more philosophical one. And the point is, if you live, what you find is people who live, in less urban kind of places like Texas or Indiana or whatnot, it's kind of like, I'm not going to rely on anybody else. I'm going to take care of myself and my own, thank you very much, and I'll let you do likewise. So there's this rugged individualism, and people really not only espouse that, but they do it for a reason, which is I remember in Texas one time some some people driving up on another guy and I with guns, and it was like, oh, boy, you know, it was like, what are you going to do here? And the point is is that even if we had cell phones back then and dialed 911, well, probably in 15 or 20 minutes, a police car or vehicle might have gotten to us. So you can see where it's like people would want to have some means of recourse, whereas in most places it doesn't make any sense. But the funny part is the data. If you look at the data, oh, my goodness, from the South. Let's look at the Atlanta Police Department. David Hemingway from, from Boston has cited this frequently. 1.5% of the time. So 98.5 percent of the time, it's the it, it's the circumstance is you're not successful defending your home with your own gun. 1.5 percent of the time, the Atlanta Police Department found that someone was able to deter an intruder with their home <laughs> firearm, and the intruder was twice as likely to get it from them if they tried to pull it out of. Them. So here's the point. Uh, if you look at other data, which says that you're about 22 times more likely to get shot with, uh, with a gun or an accidental shooting occur in your house and someone get killed and to actually fend off a bad guy, if you will, the bottom line on that is so, so that means the odds are about 1 in 22, let's say, that you're going to have some successful outcome by having your gun. But think about that for a second. If you're from Texas, you're like, them's damn good odds. The lottery's way worse than that. So if i got a 5% chance of being able to defend myself, I'll take those odds. And so, again, it's very philosophical in all this. I think about kind of the individualism piece here versus, like, community consideration where, oops, I dropped my gun and it, you know, discharged and shot somebody in the adjacent apartment or house. So those kinds of things end up being, unfortunately, kind of relevant. So the gun stuff is not something that many of us are very enthusiastic about as far as trying to get teachers armed or any of that kind of stuff because the data just doesn't support that they're helpful. But we're not going to change that mentality in the near future, you know, based on just where you know what people have grown up and, and what they've been exposed to.
0: So, what what's the solution?
1: In terms of guns, or in terms of like school shootings, school, shi-
0: school shootings in general.
1: Yeah. So again, I you know I, I know I'm beating a, you know a dead horse to, to bad pun it, but. You know the, the right thing to do is to look up developmentally and say, "How are we getting our kids connected?" And connected does not mean that they right. <laughs> play with the same warriors du jour on Fortnite. It's got to be like real people, right? We know that that's, real people are a very different experience than doing something quote unquote virtually. So we have to find places for them. We got to be looking at from early on. We got to be equipping them with both social pragmatic recognizing what's going on skills and social skills. You know how to engage with people. We got to reward pro-social behavior. We've got what work, work people through bullying. Again, when you're an adolescent, you're going to intimidate other people, trying to, you know, jockey for positions so you got more options in terms of the nubile, you know, and things around you, if you will. And some kids are not going to immediately not bully. You know, they're going to say intimidating, overpowering kind of things. So you have to teach kids how to work through that stuff. And you got to do something about the culture. You know, we recently had what the circumstance where guys in Minnesota were going to go become Uber drivers and drive fans from another town uh, for the Super Bowl, they were going to drive them out in the middle of nowhere because they were so mad about the way they'd been treated at the game. It's like, you know, as long as people think they can bully and intimidate people in a great, you know, in like other kind of events, it's going to be hard to, you know, teach kids to do that and expect it to actually get any traction. So we have to, like, you know, adjust those kinds of things a fair amount. we got to have, you know, mental health people engage with the school. That's where the kids are, duh. Uh, work with the school staff. The school staff are very good, very astute at picking this stuff up. And, again, we whether it's police officers or teachers, they're really our main, you know, force for, like, recognizing and, and altering the trajectory of kids who are, are more prone to, like, either become more likely suicidal than they are homicidal. But something, again, to prevent, like, psychopathology and other kind of bad outcomes from occurring. Yep.
2: Hmm. So it's, it's really comes down, again, to the simplest thing. We've got to just remind kids that they're valuable. Right. You know we've got to be able to make that small change remember you control no one you influence everyone we have an opportunity at every moment to remind someone of their value yeah. and and we've got to be able to model that with kids so kids begin to see that that's the way we begin engaging with each other you know bullies are real but you know one of the ways we, we manage the kids who've been bullied is to say it's, it's kind of pathetic that the, the best way this kid can feel valuable is to make you feel less right. valuable it's kind of pathetic, sure Fred, you know, so yeah, so you know we if we can do that uh, and and we have to be able to remind the teachers that they're valuable and the parents that they're valuable and the administrators they're valuable, and mark you're valuable tom and it's it's true, and of course you know our our guest jeff Boston yeah. but but really i th- I think if if we can just model that, I think we got a real good chance at uh, Okay. Doing some positive difference,
1: making some positive. And more change. and more people are. You know, we act like things are really bad and awful and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is, the vast majority of people with whom I interact—be they police officers, be they teachers—the vast majority of them are much more sophisticated and much more eager to do these kinds of things than I can recall in past times. So it's, I don't think we're fighting an uphill battle here.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're, we're just about out of time. I want to say I, I really appreciate yes. uh, you, your time today. You've made me feel very valuable and all of us. I hope that, that the listening audience really takes something away from this. We can do this. Yes. We can reduce school violence. We've got to be able to learn about the brain and, and recognize it.
0: Identify them all.
2: And there's a little limbic part of all of us. we yeah. just got to keep it in check. Keep it frontal. Don't go limbic. Dr. Bostic, thanks so much. Hopefully we'll have you back as a guest again. And, uh, folks, this is the Dr. Joe Show. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Good Good night.